Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario Premier says there could be some positive COVID-19 news today with rising cases. What positive news could it be? We'll talk about that. After receiving a reprimand from City Council a month ago, Cameron Kretsch is requesting a judicial review of the city's integrity commissioner. He'll join us to talk about why. And budget pressures at Hamilton City Council. How's it going to affect your taxes? That's not a happy story. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario Premier Doug Ford uh, says he's going to give us an update on what's happening with COVID-19. Now, the numbers and the message last week was pretty bleak, but as uh, Global's Dave Woodard tells us, uh, the Premier's looking pretty good about what he wants to talk about today. Even though today's daily COVID case count remained relatively stagnant, Premier Ford says Dr. Adelstein Brown will deliver a new set of projections on Thursday. We see the curve going down, which is which is great news. The Premier wouldn't go into details, but... We see it going in the right direction, and that, that's really positive, and I'm you know, I, I just, it's, it's put me in a good mood today. You know? But Premier Ford admits that just because the curve is sloping down a little bit, it doesn't mean that Ontarians should lose focus on physical distancing, wearing masks, and washing hands regularly. Dave Woodard, Global News. So, uh, the ebullience of the Premier, I guess, should be heartening for all of us, but uh, do we take a message from that? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, of course, a retired journalist with the Toronto Star, the Carrot Queen's Park in Parliament Hill for many, many years, and uh, has attended many of these uh, sorts of uh, uh, festivities and conferences. Uh, Badger, what do you think of this now? The Premier is obviously sending a vibe out here that we're doing a pretty good job. Do we take him at, his, uh, at face value here? Well, I know that uh, Doug Ford knows that People, uh, you know, had it just up to about here with uh, COVID, and and, uh, and they are looking for brighter days. But I'll tell you, it's a dangerous game he's playing uh, in terms of uh, politically. You know, he's going. I, you know, he's going to say today that you know the it's Wagner is going down. You know, better days ahead. Uh, well, that's terrific, and let's hope he's absolutely right. But if he isn't. And, you know, he wasn't before, uh, you know, just before Thanksgiving, he said that, you know, everything was, you know, looking good. The curve was being flattened. And then that's when we got, you know, the numbers over a thousand, et cetera, after that two weeks later. So, it, it you know, again, uh, we, we hope that he, you know, that the, the formulations they're doing are, are, are right. But if they're not, it's, you know, we're right back to square one again. And there's no, I don't, I, I, they can, they can do all the modeling they like, but are, are they, you know, they can't say for sure that we're not going to end up tomorrow with another thousand cases. They just can't promise that. You know, they can, you know, they can speculate that it's going down. But for him, it's it's more you know the scientists and, and all the other folks can say this, but for him, it's politically dangerous, no question about it. But is there an attempt here to try to change the channel just a little bit? Because he's taking a lot of heat for some of the things he's done, of course, with you know having some of the what he calls hot spots, uh, going back to some you know machination of phase two. So there's some closures and some more restrictions. Uh, places and we all know the areas of, of the province where that's happening uh, there was some talk as you know earlier this week that they were going to include Halton in that too and the Halton mayor seemed to push back on that so he seems to have put that on the back burner for now but you know there's, there's talk about some of the concerns about regulations for some of these gym classes and spin classes and things of this nature and you're saying hey wait a second so 
you know, with that kind of pressure on him, uh, is he simply going to say, look, maybe I can deliver some good news, and that might just turn the heat down a little bit? Well, there's no question. He's, he's trying, I don't know, change the channel, so to speak, but he wants to put a, a positive spin on the whole thing. And he's, he's you know, he's, he's out under, he's on a limb here. And, and let's hope somebody isn't at the trunk trying to saw it off. Because this, this could be, like I said, this, this, you know, this is, could be good news, or it could, in a couple of days, it could be very bad news for him. He may be wanting to change the channel on, you know, some of the flack he's getting right now for, for various things, and he might be trying to improve his, his stature in the public's eye. But I don't know if this is the way to do it. I, I, I really don't. Well, because what you're doing here, and, and when he gets in front of everybody here later on this afternoon, uh, they're, they're guessing, really. I mean, th- these are projections. These are estimates. These are, you know, basically we think this might happen. But there are so many variables. I mean, if we've learned anything over the last uh, nine or ten months that this has been around, be, uh, Badger, it's it's that we, we need to be skeptical about some of these numbers. Uh, and I'm not, you know trying to take a shot at anybody's credibility here it's just that i'm always nervous when politicians deliver the news instead of the medical professionals and i know he's there's going to be a couple of doctors that are going to be up there today too but even the public is getting a little skeptical of some of that stuff that they're hearing from the medical profession at least here in ontario anyway about some of the numbers and some of the decisions made based on those numbers well I'll look for look for these you know these experts that'll be up there today to be very guarded they may they may couch this in a positive term, but I'll tell you, there will be many uh, conditions put on it. You know, if this happens and that happens and the people do what they're supposed to do and all that, you'll hear all that, of course. And we'll, you know, we'll see. I mean, look, at, look what kind of trouble Trump. I'm not really trying to make this comparison, but I'm just pointing it out. It just look at all the trouble he's gotten into by telling people that everything's all right and it's just a you know the curves flatten and uh, and uh, you know things are just around the corner are going to be better and it's going to the sunshine's going to shine again and everybody's going to have a job and all that I mean look at it just backfired on him and that's what I'm saying it, this is what you 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 hope for. Everybody's sake, including the, the, the premiers, that it doesn't backfire. We're skeptical, and, and I think with some validity, too. I mean, during the first wave, as they came forward on a daily basis, uh, and, and, and the medical professionals were there, too, and we saw these rising numbers, which, by the way, are the same magnitude of what we're seeing now, and that should concern us. Uh, and they said, okay, we're going to have to do this, we're going to have to restrict this, we're going to have to shut this down for a while. We thought, okay, fine, yeah, this is this is serious stuff, we get that. But now we're starting to question some of those decisions. And and I just mentioned earlier about the pushback from some of the mayors in the Halton region about uh, the possibility of some restrictions on And they asked what I thought was a very legitimate question. Instead of simply saying, well, these spikes are because of the restaurants and bars, show us that. Show us the evidence. Show us the proof that it's the restaurants and bars. Because we're hearing anecdotally that the spike that seems to be going up in a lot of these regions is caused by private gatherings or, you know, or or like, you know, Mr. Oosterhoff over the weekend and things of that nature. And it's not the restaurants and bars. It's the people that are having these large parties and gatherings, and they're the ones that are causing the the spread. And if that's the case... Thanksgiving was the one that caused the numbers to to go up. Absolutely right. And if I had a business, I would say, okay, I am, you know, intent on getting... Uh, you know, flattening the curve as anyone else. But prove to me 
that my restaurant is contributing to this. Or do they have those numbers? My, I mean, do they, do they break it down that way? Yeah, I mean, and people have a right to know this. You know, instead of unilaterally just saying, you know, everything shut down, let's let's tell people, okay, these are these are areas that are hot spots, and and they have to, you know, they have to abide by the restrictions. But maybe these people over here don't, or aren't. Yeah, it's it, it just. People are frustrated. Well, here's what I've heard, and I'm sure you know, you've got anecdotal evidence about this as well. People that have reopened, I'm talking about that that aspect of it, restaurants and bars in particular, because they're the ones that seem to the first ones that get you know blamed when when we see these numbers going up. Uh, and and to my point, I mean, they're saying, well, show us that we're causing it, show us where there's there's a problem here because of what's going on, because we're all complying, they're all doing what they're supposed to be doing, vis a vis, you know, social distancing and and barriers and limiting the amount of people that can go in the facilities, uh, and and especially now because you know it's getting a little chilly and people are coming indoors, but you know, then on the other hand, you've got people that are having house parties with 25 or 30 people. It, it the the problem that one of them told me is, look, it it's easy to pick on us because it's easy to t- say you can enforce. You can just walk in the door of my restaurant and see whether or not I'm complying. And wait a second, there's one too many people here or whatever. But they don't, you can't, you can't do that with house parties. You can't do that with private gatherings. You can't knock on the door and say, got anybody in there? So, I mean, they know that they can get away with it, and uh, the, the people in the restaurants can't. So why are we punishing the restaurant and bar owners when, in fact, that's probably not where the spread's coming from? Restaurants have taken, as you know, they've made taken efforts to do the best they can. I'm just talking about, you know, the majority of them have do the best they can. I mean, they no longer can you belly up to the bar, so to speak, and and shoot the guff with the next guy. You know, the guy next having beer with you. I mean, you know, that's obvious. But they're making, you know, they're making tables smaller. They're making the distance. You know, I mean, for, you know, for example, the Collins in. in in Dundas, great spot. You know, mm-hmm. they they've had a they have a big outdoor patio, and the door it, all all the tables are separated. You know, there's only so many tables. You know, or, uh, seats per table, and and they've made it real effort. In fact, they did. You know, they didn't even want to open up, and I don't know if they have even inside yet because they had the patio. They everybody's doing their best now, and they want to know. Okay. Show me, tell me how opening up my restaurant and making all the efforts I can to reduce any, you know, transfer. Show me that that isn't, you know, uh, all everything I can do, and show me that it's not working. And that's what people want to know. Proof, I guess, that restaurants are contributing, and uh, so to speak. I, I don't think I've ever read anything that's positively said that restaurants etc are contributing to this we'll see well and and that's only one aspect of it i mean there's some other things too and and i understand that you know we're we're going to conflate this with the covid fatigue a lot of people have and just say we're tired of all these restrictions we're tired of all this crap you know we want i want to go to a movie i want to go to a football game uh that sort of thing and i, I understand the frustration that's going on here but what we're looking for here and i think what we want to hear from the premier today is statistical proof now he's going to tell us that the numbers are down it was over a thousand of course a couple of times uh and they said that uh, yesterday i guess it was 834 new infections and five deaths 
834 is nothing to brag about. Okay, that's still a very high number. It's not a thousand. I get that. And he's going to suggest that they're trending down. But, but Badger, if we've learned over the last nine months, these numbers ebb and flow every week anyway. And, you know, so all of a sudden to grab one that was lower than the day before and say, ha ha, we're on the right track, I think is a little premature. Well, that, that's exactly. Well, that's the point I'm trying to make. It could, it does fluctuate, and it could be over a thousand tomorrow. There's no guarantees that it won't be. We're we're in the midst of a, a second wave of pandemic, and it can go anywhere. And I think it's being overly optimistic to say that you know we're the curve's being flattened, and look out, folks, that we're we're headed to greater times. God, I hope they're right, but it just it's just too much to believe, quite frankly, right now, that things are, you know, uh, t- going backwards, and we're, you know, when people are looking for that kind of, you know, that, that kind of support from the government, but I, I just think it's a bit of a fantasy land, quite frankly. Well, and then how disappointed are we going to be if we see a spike after Halloween? Well, you know what? I don't think we will on this, uh, quite frankly. I don't, you know, unless, unless you know, there, or there's people out there that are going to have a house party or, or a community hall party with all kinds of people, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, you know, for example, my wife and neighbor went around yesterday and took the packages over to the kids that live in the neighborhood and took all their packages to them because we know that they come to the house. Sure. And they took their bags, individual bags, and, and took them to them, and said, "You know, we're, we're, you know, we're not going to be giving out this year, but we wanted your kids to have these." And I think a lot of people are going to be doing that kind of thing, and s- certainly social distancing. In, in terms of, you know, maybe putting the, the you know, uh, a dish of candies out there and, and asking the kids to take their, you know, you know, take it themselves, or help themselves, or some other method where they're not being exposed to the kids that are back at school and everything else. I mean, that only just makes sense. I'm really hoping that people use some common sense at Halloween and that it, it, it you know, the numbers, you know, the following days or two weeks aren't reflected. I, I just, I even wonder about having these daily briefings, uh, you know, which the premier has been doing really since the beginning of this thing, uh, because it's it's hard to, d- to develop a trend on a daily basis. You have to get a body of evidence together to do this. And uh, I, I'm just worried that people are going to get a false sense of security because, you know, what happens every time we say, hey, we're on the right track, we let up again. And, and then the numbers start to go up. And, I mean, we know that this is a second phase. We know that it, it's a problem. And we know that if we don't follow the rules, we're going to be in big trouble. And then when we see the premier getting up there and saying, thank God you guys listened to this, uh, it, I, I don't know that that's the case. That's all I'm saying. When he presupposes that these numbers are going to be great and he wants to deliver good news, uh, I'd rather hear realistic news as opposed to, you know, let's, let's cross our fingers because it looks like things are happening. Because every medical professional that we've talked to and everyone that we've heard over the last 10 days especially have said we're in for a hell of a time this winter. So let's not pretend ourselves and candy coat this and say, "Don't hey, we're going to be okay." Uh, you know, I, I hope it's not bad. I really do. But the experts are telling us that it probably will be as the weather gets colder and we're indoors more. Well, I'd like to talk to the people that are on the front line of the hospitals and hear what they have to say. 
I wonder if that's even going to come up today because, you know, you've heard the stories over the last couple of days here on, on our show uh, that some hospitals here are near or at capacity, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, what's happening in ICU units. And, and they're concerned about that right now. Uh, you know, and we already know that some hospitals apparently across the province are delaying what they call elective surgeries because of the anticipation and because of the workload and the number of patients that have come on. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's a, a barometer that we need to pay attention to. Well, absolutely. You know, it's just the people, you know, you know, we're just to back up for just a second. We're talking, you know, we're saying, you know, everything's good. You know, we might hear today that everything's rosy and that the numbers are going down. The speculation, of course. But I'll tell you, ask, ask the family, the people that have died from it, if everything's rosy. Yeah, Exactly. Well, we'll see what uh, what kind of a, a varnish he puts on it today uh, with a little bit later on this afternoon. And, of course, we'll have it for you here on uh, 900 CHML. And, of course, on CFPL, we'll carry the news as soon as it gets to us. Uh, Badger, as always, thanks so much for this. Stay well. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Okay, Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queen's Park for many years. Glad to have him with us for this morning. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, after receiving a reprimand from uh, Hamilton City Council about a month or so ago, Cameron Kretsch is uh, requesting a judicial review of the City of Hamilton's Integrity Commissioner. This had to do with some uh, comments that he uh, is alleged to have made and some documents that he made public, at least they say anyway. Uh, and he was rebuked by City Council as a result of this. And uh, we at the time, raised some questions about the procedures and, and actually why this thing happened in the first place. So it's not surprising to me, and I'm sure a lot of other people in the community, that, uh, that Cameron has decided to take some action here. Cameron Crutch joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show uh, to explain. Uh, Cameron, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, I'm doing okay, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Well, yeah, I should say, given the circumstances, I suppose, there's got to be a qualifier on this. Uh, talk to us about the process. I think you and I talked about this the day after Council made their decision, and uh, and I thought there was an inevitability here that you were going to do something about this. Uh, what's what's coming on the board now? What are you guys looking for? Yeah, we're really asking for the courts to look at and review the decisions made by the Integrity Commissioner and by City Council. And so... We're looking at this from a broader perspective in terms of should the integrity commissioner have been able to use this process to investigate a citizen volunteer in the first place. That's the first thing we're asking. Second thing we're asking is about procedural fairness. Was the process they used to investigate me fair? Um, we don't think it was. And then we're looking at the decisions that council made in public, the September 30th meeting, the one, first of all, to reprimand me and the second to receive this report, which might seem like a minor thing, but, you know, is really about uh, setting a precedent, right, that this can be done in the future and that people can uh, certainly complain to the Integrity Commissioner to come after uh, advisory committee members. So those are the four things we're kind of exploring through the judicial review process. And, you know, really, we didn't want to have to take all those things to judicial review. We had hoped... Um, that we could avoid having to file this week against counsel and that they would have reversed reprimand against me when they had the chance on Wednesday. Yeah, this is a two-part process we should explain to our listeners. that uh, The first part of this that, that, that we're talking about here now is the review itself. Uh, and part two of this is the way counsel reacted to the review, I guess, and the, uh, the results that they got. And we'll get to that in just a couple of seconds. But I want to get back to the process, first of all, uh, because it's, uh, as, as 
our listeners would know who are following this story, uh, part of the reason that they were uh, they really had a, a bone to pick with you, at least they thought they did anyway, was some comments you made on this program uh, about process, about selecting people for things like the police services board and other things like that. Uh, and, and I was always under the impression that, you know, in, in our society, uh, you know, citizens have a right to dissent and have a right to dissenting opinions about something. And there were some serious questions uh, raised by not just you, Cameron, but lots of people in this community about process and about the procedures that were ongoing. And you simply voiced your concern about those. And all of a sudden, uh, that was a bad thing to do. Did you ever get the impression uh, that, that, you know, that you were being stifled because of, of what was going on? No, I got the opposite impression, in fact. Throughout the process of becoming a member of this advisory committee, there's training and there's conversations. And when media started reaching out to me after our committee had decided to pass that motion last May about the flag raising, um, I contacted the city and just said straight up, hey, um, I'm not sure how to deal with this because the code of conduct and the rules you have for advisory committees really aren't clear. And they said to me, you're perfectly within your rights to talk to the media as long as you only speak about things the committee talked about in public, and if you want to give your own personal opinion, just say so. So the city seemed to, from that point, say it was perfectly fine for me to speak to the media. When I got that complaint, it was the first time I'd heard that it was a problem. And there are two specific things here that I want to get your read on here, and I know that this is going to come up during the review uh, when you and your lawyer make your presentations, uh, hopefully sooner than later. Uh, that you, for all intents and purposes, exposed two names that, that they th- apparently thought you should not have done. They said it was it was a confidential document. Uh, uh, one was an employee to the Police Services Board, a city employee, a, appointee, and another was a longtime city employee who was uh, found to have had strong ties with neo-Nazi groups and, and web pages and things of that nature. Uh, and and they, they were angry at you for doing that. Yet, at the same time, that very document with those names on it had been posted on the website of the Police Services Board for how long? Weeks? Months? Weeks, for anyway. a year. Bill. Okay. So, so, the uh, so here's, here's my... Th- had been posted for a year. Yeah, so if, if it's there and the names are there on a, on a website, uh, it is by definition, I think, a public document. So why are they getting upset about you actually referring to that public document that they had put on their webpage? Well, it's even more absurd than that, Bill. The tweet I posted didn't even have any names in it. And so the document they had up there had the names in which they objected to. Mine didn't even have them in it. But this has really not been about private information from the beginning. This has been a process the city has been using for, frankly, mysterious reasons. They've never tried to resolve the matter. I've never had someone from the city hall call me and say, Cameron, hey, you know, we saw this tweet out there. We're concerned about the tweet for the following reasons, and we'd ask you to take it down. And here's why we'd like you to take it down. Would you consider that? That's never happened. The first time I got noticed that there was a problem about this was when I got a complaint from the Integrity Commissioner. This hasn't been about trying to resolve this and to ensure that the process has been equitable. uh, In fact, as Councillor Clark said on September 30th, he said, why isn't uh, Mr. Kretsch able to come here and speak to us and give us a side of the story? Why was my response uh, not sent to Council so they could see what I had to say in my own words? So it, it remains a mystery here, Bill, to me, as to why this has gone the way it has and why they've engaged this process, because, as your listeners should know, City Council has always had the authority, outside of going to the Integrity Commissioner, to reprimand me, remove me from the committee, or do anything else they wanted. After all, they're the ones that appointed me to this committee. So using this instrument was a very deliberate choice, and one I'm not sure of the reason for. 
Well, it was public humiliation, public, you know, embarrassment to try to, you know, all of a sudden to throw this whole thing at you, uh, which brings us to part two of this whole process. Uh, should the integrity commissioner actually even be investigating private citizens, and which is what you are? No, I, yes, I know they're going to argue that you were on a citizen or on a, on a committee, but you're not a paid member. Uh, you're a volunteer, basically. Uh, and, you know, when you accept that responsibility and you're, you, you are, you know, awarded a position on that board, uh, the insinuation that they're saying now, I don't, I don't care what they said at the time because they tell everybody the same thing, but from what they have done subsequent to that is that, okay, once you're a member of one of these boards, whichever board it is, whether it's the Football Hall of Fame Committee or, or whatever, uh, you have to keep your mouth shut and just toe the city line. And if you don't, you're going to find yourself in trouble. That seems to be the message they're sending. It definitely seems to be the message they're sending, and it's not a surprise just to me, Bill. It's a surprise to many other people, some who've spoken publicly as members of advisory committees, um, saying that they were shocked to hear that the integrity commissioner could be used to investigate them. Members from the Aboriginal Advisory Committee, members from the Cycling Committee, spoke out in public talking about this and about how they were shocked that this instrument could be used. It's extra weird, in my opinion, because the integrity commissioner this city hired is made up of a firm of two people, and one of those folks is the former city solicitor. I think that it's, it's strange, specifically when you think about the comments that were made yesterday at council. I'm not sure if you heard it, but Councillor Tom Jackson asked the city solicitor, the current city, city solicitor, um, you know, how they were going to go about defending themselves in this judicial review. And the city solicitor said that they were going to go to outside legal counsel. I thought that was kind of strange, but she gave a bunch of reasons. And one of them was that they were worried about a potential conflict down the road um, and worried about the fact that this might, you know, take away from the city's other legal resources. And the thing I think that's important is that it seems to have been a request from the integrity commissioner that they go outside because of a potential conflict. The only conflict I can think of, and I can't be sure, is that the former city solicitor is is basically the integrity commissioner. So this situation is just getting more and more um, bizarre and more strange as time goes on. I don't think anyone has answers as to why they chose to go this way. I'm not even sure uh, many councillors do. So that's process, and that's you know the fact that the integrity commissioner was even involved in this. I I would have thought, and, and this is only my opinion, uh, that if the council had made this request to the integrity commissioner, uh, the response probably should have been, uh, "That's beyond our purview. We don't do that. Uh, you know, you guys settle this yourself." Uh, but they didn't. They they took it on, and and we've seen the result of this, uh, which brings us to the second part of this was uh, the process itself. You did have an opportunity to speak to the integrity commissioner. Yes, um, I was interviewed in June for, I think, about an hour and a half or around there uh, to talk to the Integrity Commissioner. And by that time, all I'd kind of received, Bill, was a 61-page document with uh, a bunch of things in it, some allegations, um, nothing at that point, as far as I can recall, about the media interview. And I was just asked some basic questions if I could respond to it. And then I didn't hear back again uh, until, I think, if I recall correctly, sometime in August with kind of a draft report. Um, which said, you know, here are our draft findings, and then, you know, we'll hear a response from you on the draft findings, and then we'll submit a final report. And that was it. I submitted my draft response. I thought I would hear from the Integrity Commissioner again, and I would hear from um, the almost 100 pages, or just slightly over more than 100 pages I submitted to them. I would hear a response and have a chance to have a dialogue with them about it, but not at all. September 24th, I received the final recommendation report, and then it was put on the public agenda um, that Friday, I think two days later. 
So there was no real discussion or back and forth uh, there between myself and the integrity commissioner to resolve this matter. It was sort of going full steam ahead, I guess, from the beginning. When you read the the, the draft uh, from the integrity commissioner, did you sense that was there anything that you had had in your discussion with him that was reflected in that draft? It looks like some of the things I discussed with them were in the draft, but uh, again, at that point, I had no idea what the accusations were. I had no idea what they were claiming I violated the code of conduct about. I didn't find that out till I got the draft. Then when I responded to the accusations, which is the first time I'd had to see them, um, I got no response to that. And you have not been, uh, to this point anyway, uh, given the opportunity to, to talk to city council about this, to address council. No, I mean... I don't even know what the process would be like for that. Right now, during COVID, I think they've made some exceptions for the Commonwealth Games folks to come and give a delegation to council. But beyond that, I don't think any of their exceptions have been granted. You can't delegate to council. So the whole no, thing has been kind of routed through you know, a bunch of processes, I think, that are really difficult for the people in the public to understand. And this seems to have, there seems to have been all along an easier way to resolve all this. And I'm sorry it's gotten to this point. I don't know why council has continued to double down. I don't know why yesterday they didn't reverse the reprimand against me. Um, it seems like they're just intent on seeing this through legal channels, which, of course, you know, um, additional costs. It's not a it's not a good idea. Do you think you have the right to face your accusers? I think at some point it would be useful for that conversation to happen for the public. I do think it's important for me to be able to dialogue with them because even if it's just a matter of me having submitted that document to them and it being given to them when they were making the decision, um, unfortunately, the nature of these processes now is you go through this very formal judicial review, which doesn't really allow for that. Like, it's not a trial, right? Um, and so, um, you know, as I said before, and I think it's important to point out again, City Council could have just dealt with this themselves. They've always had the authority to reprimand me if they wanted. They've kind of made this, from the beginning, an indirect action. They've chosen to go through the integrity commissioners so they didn't have to get their hands dirty. I would much rather have resolved this matter with them directly, um, but it's not the way they chose to go. I'm sure there are people on City Council that are really ticked off at you because of, of what you've said and, and, and the fact that you had some concerns about process. And let's face it, they're the ones that develop the process and enact the process, so some of them are going to get their backs up. And you know there's some rather sensitive people on that council. I understand that. I don't justify it, but I understand it. But uh, we are moving more and more. I mean, if you want to talk about you know solving conflict, and this there was a conflict here, to be sure, uh, we are moving more and more towards reconciliation. In other words, uh, and, and, and they're doing this in the courts even. You know, it, Let's get both sides together and see if we can talk this out instead of going through this process. Instead, and they could have done that, and they should have done that, uh, as you say, there was a process for you to simply sit down with counsel and say, here's why I said this, what's the problem with it, and let them explain that to you, and then you can go from there. But instead, they've just enveloped you in red tape here and said, this is the process, I can't talk about this now, and you even heard that yesterday. Counselors saying, well, we have to wait for this judicial process to go through. Uh, really? Or can you just say, you know what, we, we, we rescind this? Uh, you know, that's all they had to do, and I, it, I don't know that it made the problem go away, but it sure would have made everything a lot easier for everybody. Yeah, and I just think the obvious question here for them should be, I would hope, we're in the middle of a pandemic here. The situation is unprecedented. The fact that they launched this investigation at the beginning of March, and then the Integrity Commissioner insisted on doing this on, you know, at the end of March and all through the summer, um, to me, shows there wasn't really an interest in trying to come up with a solution. 
that address the context of what's happening around the world right now. Yeah, sitting down and having a conversation about this would have been the way to go about it, um, whether virtually or otherwise. Trying to come to a resolution before taking this this measure um, would have been the way to do this. But that didn't seem to be what anyone was interested in from the get-go, Bill. You know, when when you complained at Pride Week and asked them not to take or to, to do the flag raising at the city hall because you had some serious concerns about uh, some of the attitudes at city about uh, about what your committee was supposed to be doing. Did you ever think it was going to devolve into this? In no way, Bill. Um, my first meeting ever as a member of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee was May 15th of last year, and a member of our committee brought that motion forward. I never would have predicted that our committee supporting that motion would have turned into this. Um, it has been unbelievable. Um, it started with Councillor Marula resigning as appointed to the committee. Um, it's, it, you know, the mayor calling an emergency meeting of our committee and then not showing up to it. Um, all the way through the events at Pride to now, I never would have thought any of this would have happened. There have been just so, so many ways, Bill, for our leadership in this city to reach out compassionately, reach out with directly, and reach out with a mind to resolution. And every single time, they've chosen the opposite. They've chosen to be difficult and to double down, right? So it's just gotten progressively worse, unfortunately. I don't see a light at the end of this tunnel. And one of the reasons I am um, taking this matter to be adjudicated by the courts is because I don't want this to happen to anybody else. I don't think that city council should be emboldened to continue to come after residents when they say and do things they don't like. There are many other ways to resolve these matters, and I really hope going forward that they do that. They take those avenues. The reason I brought the the historical perspective up about uh, what happened with Pride Week uh, because I, I I know that there's going to be an argument made by some people on council that well that's they're two different issues no they're not I, I still my opinion uh, I think that this is a continuation of some of the uh, the animosity that was obviously evident during that uh, and 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 that's sad that uh, that that would happen in a situation like this and uh, you know I doubt you'll ever get anybody on city council to admit to that but uh, I think that probably fueled to a certain extent part of the the process that they've undergone here. And uh, just judging from some of the comments we heard from some of the councillors yesterday in response to, to your actions here and the, the legal actions you're taking, uh, I, I get the sense that some of them are rather remorseful about it, but they don't know how to react and how to go forward on this, and, and that's problematic. This is a situation going all the way back to that, that Pride Week situation that, that just tr- screamed for leadership. And I don't just mean from one person, but I mean from our elected representatives. And uh, they dropped the ball here, and now look where we are. Bill, you're hitting the nail on the head. In fact, Esther Pauls, Councillor Esther Pauls, during all the meetings that Council discussed so far, discussed this reprimand against me, actually kept mentioning the fact that she couldn't be part of these discussions because they related to the Pride events and because they related to what happened with police. So it seems to me at least some councillors totally agree with you. Um, Yeah, and I agree with you that it's been awkward for some in terms of them trying to express their remorse, but 11 people yesterday decided not to um, rescind the reprimand, despite the fact that the city solicitor said, you're more than willing, you're more than welcome. There's no legal impediment to you to rescinding this reprimand today. They found a way to talk themselves into a circle about risks. And as we talked about before, Bill, that's one of the big problems with this council. It's really important to monitor your risks and make sure you're not taking you know, really risky behaviors. But you don't have to be so risk adverse to be absurd. When your own city solicitor says to you, look, there's a way we can get this reprimand squashed today, and you decide to go the other way, what's that about? 
why are we asking too much of people to, to 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 admit that maybe they screwed up as opposed to having to always wait until they go through a long and lengthy and expensive process to be told that they screwed up uh, to make that admission? I, it's a rhetorical question, I guess, but I'm getting a little tired of it happening time and time again. Cameron, more to come on this to be sure, and uh, stay in touch. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Cameron Crash, of course, community member who has initiated uh, a process right now uh, about uh, the review of his activities and uh, his statements about what went on. And city council, uh, well, sort of for now, kicking it down the road, saying, well, it's a legal issue right now. Yeah, I always like to hang their head on stuff like that. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hamilton City Council is uh, meeting as we speak, as a matter of fact, uh, remotely, of course. Uh, and they're going to start tackling 2021, which is going to be a rather onerous task. I mean, budget uh, discussions do start uh, in, in this late in the year for what's going to be happening. And the forecast is... Uh, well, not pleasant, uh, let's face it, and the challenges are immense for city councils right across the country, in fact, because of what's happening with COVID. Uh, John Paul Danko, the uh, counselor for Ward 8 for the City of Hamilton, uh, hops out of the meeting for a couple of minutes to talk to us about it. JP, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. So we're talking about Halloween costumes, something fun today? <laughs> afraid not, uh, afraid not, but, <laughs> but, something, but something just as scary, the numbers that you're going to be facing in 2021. 2021 is definitely going to be a challenge for the city of Hamilton and all municipalities. Right now, we're projecting around a 4% municipal tax increase uh, for 2021. Uh, the city of Hamilton has three budgets that we'll set in the upcoming months. So we have our operating budget, which is the cost of uh, city services. We have our rate budget, which is water and uh, services that are paid with uh, user fees and rates. And then we have our capital budget, which is the cost of infrastructure and uh, capital investments. So with our initial projection, we'll work through each of those budgets and see what efficiencies are available. I will say that our original 2021 projection from last year, because the city of Hamilton does multi-year budget uh, projections, was actually 4.2%, and that was a result of some pretty significant uh, downloading from the province uh, in 2019 and 2020. So we're actually a little bit under what our 2021 projection was, which is actually quite remarkable considering everything that's happened in 2020 with COVID and, and all the unknowns that we were hit with. So I am cautiously optimistic as, as we move through this year's budget process. Uh, the other element of this, too, and you and I talked about this a few months ago, of course, when it happened, is uh, the, the, you got some relief from the feds, uh, which, which mitigated some of the impacts that you were having from COVID-19, but there are no guarantees for next year, are there? There's not, and we would be in a very, very serious financial position if it wasn't with for that uh, relief that the city of Hamilton received from upper levels of government from both the federal government and the provincial government. But uh, there is no commitments past 2021. So working through the 2020 budget, you know, as COVID hit, we, our staff did a very, very good job of doing their best to cut our expenses, to move money around, to look at reserves, um, different financing methods, to make sure that we as a city were in a good financial position no matter what happened because the future being so unknown. So. I think as a municipality, we're in as good a shape as we could expect to be moving forward, but there are no upper levels of government's right net commitments, um, no additional money available past 2021. So that's obviously a very big concern for uh, the city of Hamilton. 
And uh, just another concern on the, the COVID side is, is we really don't know what the epidemiology of this virus is going to be. We're sort of all working under the impression right now of a linear recovery where there's going to be a vaccine one to two years in, out, and we're going to kind of keep on the same projection that we're on now. But of course, nobody really knows what's going to happen, when a vaccine is going to be available, if it's going to be available, and uh what the current, uh, you know, status of kind of working from home and keeping everything constrained is going to be continue indefinitely. So there's there's just so many unknowns looking forward. Now, I know when you start talking about tax increases, invariably you're going to hear from some of the ratepayers. They're going to say, look, just find the efficiencies. Come on, don't, don't try to scare us like this. But I want to talk to you about how much wiggle room you actually have. Uh, you mentioned, for instance, about uh, the operating budget. Well, that's basically the day-to-day operation, you know, making sure the garbage gets picked up, the snow gets cleared, uh, you have police and fire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, From my recollection, about 90% of that budget is wages and benefits uh, for the people that do that, and those are existing contracts. You don't have much room to play with there, do you? The city of Hamilton is actually a very lean municipality. We have very few areas in our budget where there are efficiencies to be found. Um, So just looking at some of our budget pressures, Inflation and salary and benefits is the biggest one, about $17.5 million. And another one that we had in 2021 is information technology. So that's about another $3.5 million. And interesting, that's you know new equipment and people working from home and off-site. So we've had to adapt and you know spend that money in order to keep the city running. But that's a, you know, an unseen pressure that we didn't see coming previously. Um, waste management, we had a pressure in 2021 of about $6 million through recycling, curbside collection. My personal opinion, I think we lost an opportunity to save some money there. We lost about $3 million a year on uh, if we were to go to biweekly waste collection. So that would have cut about a third of a percent off the tax increase right there. But um, another one of the budget pressures is, is policing. It's going up about $5 million in 2021. So we, we do have budget pressures looking for efficiencies. I think we've done a good job of putting in strategic um, ways to reduce those uh, our municipal taxes. So in the past couple of years, we've seen really, really strong commercial and industrial growth in the city of Hamilton. You and I just had a conversation about the Stelco lands on yep. the uh, industrial waterfront. There's also all the activity that's going on at the airport with Amazon and Panatoni. And most of the uh, the um, employment uh, parks around the city in Ancaster and Waterdown are seeing really strong growth. And that takes a lot of the pressure off residential taxpayers. We've also adjusted our development charges and application fees to shift some of those costs of growth onto development that had previously been paid by um, residential taxpayers. So we're doing our best to make sure that we have the structural systems in place to make sure our taxes are as competitive as they can be. But uh, obviously, with COVID and, and the ability to pay of our residents is top of mind for all of council, because we know that there are so many residents out there that are struggling to just make end meets. And the last thing they need, to, obviously, is a tax increase. To that point, I've got a couple of minutes left here, but there's another element that uh, was hoisted upon you uh, this year because of COVID. 
cities, every city has revenue sources. I mean, you know, rentals for you know, city facilities or right, know, hockey rinks, whatever the case might be, user fees for a variety of other things, uh, which totally dried up, of course, when the city had to shut down. And you don't know what the situation is for 2021 yet, do you? No. We, so you, can, you, can't count, uh, you can't necessarily count on that revenue. No, we can't. We've lost significant revenue from transit in particular, yeah. but also from recreation and uh, and spending on public health and, and housing has been significantly increased. Interestingly, we just had a, a report from an economic, econ, economist, I can't say that word, economist, <laughs> there we go, there you go. Um, from Scotiabank, who uh, there's some pretty strong data that cities and centers that have done the best job of containing the coronavirus have done the best economically. So there is definitely a financial incentive, a direct link to containing the virus and economic recovery. So I think that's something that we need to keep in mind as we set priorities as well, that the better that we do in keeping this virus in check and under control, the better we are um, positioning ourselves economically for the future. And again, we're hoping that, uh, you know, from a pandemic standpoint, that there's a light at the end of the tunnel sometime in 2021. I mean, the experts seem to think it might happen by late spring, early summer. We're not sure. But uh, then I just heard Dr. Fauci on uh, the news the other day, last night, I guess it was, uh, saying that uh, widespread uh, vaccinations may not be around until maybe September, October of next year. Uh, so we're just going to have to sit tight. But you're right. I mean, it's it's going to be a very challenging year. Uh, and, and during those cries of, okay, come on, just find the efficiencies, cut from this, cut from that. Uh, and you have to ask back, you know, okay, what capital projects do you not want us to do? What roads do you not want us to fix? Uh, well, well, we're paying too much for water. Well, the, in the city of Hamilton, of course, uh, as you know, but for the sake of our listeners, uh, a lot of the water, the, the, the infrastructure for water and the delivery of water is on your water bill. Uh, so if you cut that back, you're cutting back on fixing pipes underground. So, I mean, the, the, the challenges here are immense. The solutions, uh, well, you have to be determined, I guess. Well, all of the regular budget priorities don't go away just because there's an international pandemic. So the the roads aren't aren't getting any better, the water pipes aren't fixing themselves, and the garbage doesn't pick itself up. So we still have all the pressures that we've always had, and we're still trying to move forward with our strategic plan as well. I mean, we're talking our our, our new strategic plan for the city of Hamilton includes things like uh, climate change, multimodal transportation, affordable housing fiscal health and financial support. So those are all strategic priorities for the city that we're still working towards that are still important. And uh, like I said, those, those budget pressures don't just disappear just because of uh, the pandemic. Um, interestingly, when we're talking about a tax increase for municipal taxes, every year our budget pressures increase with inflation and with the services and uh, facilities that we're providing. And if we talk about the consumer inflation index, it's around 2%, and the commercial price index is a little bit higher, like 3 3.5%. So really, the tax increase is net of inflation. So we're, we're pretty close to that inflation threshold, and that's the goal that we try to hit every year, because otherwise, if we're below inflation, then we're actually cutting services, and uh, um, we have to be very strategic about what we're investing in as a city. Absolutely. Well, listen, I'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for jumping out today for a few minutes and uh, lots more to discuss about this in uh, the weeks ahead. Thanks so much, John Paul. Thanks, Bill.
John Paul Danko, the uh, Board 8 Counselor for the City of Hamilton, beginning their 2021 budget discussions right now. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.